Good morning, everyone. It's day at the lake today. I know I've got my swimsuit in the car. We have an opportunity to baptize a bunch of people today and hear testimonies of the amazing work that God has been doing in people's lives, and we're looking forward to that. But first, you're here, and we're going to talk a little bit about sex and sexual sin. I know Kenny warned you about this last week. Not only that, I believe he told you to heckle me. Is that true? Okay, I want to encourage you to heckle me. I would love to turn this into a dialogue with any of you about this subject. So, by all means, bring it on. That would be terrific. Uh, as we talk about this, we're doing it in our series, Tools for Wisdom from the Book of Proverbs. Who wrote Proverbs? Most of the Book of Proverbs was written by a king of Israel named Solomon. And he is writing Proverbs specifically to his sons who are going to be king and princes of the kingdom. And as he is writing to his sons, he's talking to them about the decisions they're going to make and how not to make foolish decisions, but instead to make wise decisions in all of these different areas. And it does not surprise me at all that two whole chapters of this book, a book from a son to his fathers, has to do with sex and sexual sin and the damage that it does. Chapters 5 and 6 are entirely devoted to these subjects. It's such an important topic, but can we start off by admitting that it makes us a little bit uncomfortable? When my kids were in elementary school, I've told you before, they didn't want the word sex used in our house, and so they made us substitute the word la-di-da-di-da every time it came up. Way more comfortable, right? Last week, I had a premarital counseling appointment, and one of the subjects that we covered in that premarital counseling appointment was sex and sexual expectation. People cannot wait to get to the session where they get to talk to their pastor about sex. Everybody loves that session more than any other. No, that is a lie, right? Nobody loves that session, including the pastor. It's uncomfortable for all of us who are involved in those conversations. But sex and sexual sin aren't just uncomfortable, they're also a major area in which God's plan and the world's plan continue to diverge and get further and further from one another. Every year, the world's practice of sexuality is further away from God's plan that he gives us in the scripture of what that should look like. For us to understand what we're going to see in Proverbs the plan for battling sexual sin, we first need to understand God's design for sexual relationship. And in order to look at that, we are going to look at the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is asked about divorce. And in the process of answering the Pharisees' question about divorce, he goes back to his original design for marriage and sexual relationship, and he says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We notice right off the bat that Jesus said, God made people into two sexes, male and female. We live in a world where many people want to separate gender from sex and claim an ever-growing list of gender identifiers. 
And Jesus wants us to understand, no, there is a creator, a maker, who has authority over who we are and our identity. This issue flows out of pride. Out of the ability to say, I am the one who is in control. I name what I am. I identify the way that I choose. Jesus says, no, you have a maker and a creator. And he is the ultimate authority in who you are and the one who states your identity. He has creator's rights to name you and identify you. And every cell of your body bears God's identification as male or female. Every part of your chromosomal structure bears that identity, science tells us. But we live in a society in which people have denied God's authority and scientific truth, and based on feelings, have asserted self-authority, and now longings and feelings are leading our lives rather than the authority of our Maker. The ironic thing about this is that what we see in our society right now is a rash of teenage girls who are claiming a different gender identity based on social pressure. As research by people like Dr. Lippman of Brown University has shown, there is a large and growing trend among teenage girls to claim a different gender than their sex. And studies like Dr. Littman's have shown the trend is based largely upon social pressure and social media pressure. Her study and others have directly linked transgender declarations to social pressures girls face and the increased attention and adulation that they'll experience among peers for living their truth. Jesus calls us as his people to, instead of in pride, declaring ourselves and identifying ourselves to instead recognize his declaration over us. And that he as maker has the right to be our identifier. Not our feelings, our longings, or our declarations. We're Christians who submit to our maker's authority in each and everything. Jesus says, God has made us male and female. And then in that, has instituted marriage between a man and a woman so that they can become one flesh. Now, one flesh means an intimacy beyond the sexual relationship, but it also includes the sexual relationship. One fleshness includes physical one fleshness. Jesus teaches his, his own original creation purpose affirm from the beginning of the Bible to the end that God has made sexual relationship for marriage between a man and a woman. Why? Why has God designed sexual relationship for a marriage relationship between a man and a woman? Well, the Bible gives us several reasons why God has designed this sexual relationship for a husband and a wife within marriage. And let me give you a few of those starting with oneness. God designed sexual relationship as an expression of the intimacy between a husband and a wife and, listen to this, a tool to grow that intimacy. So that within the sexual relationship, it is both a husband and a wife expressing the intimacy that they have within that marriage as well as a tool to grow that intimacy. It isn't a surprise that biochemical understandings uh, confirm the growth of this oneness that takes place between a husband and a wife within the sexual relationship. 
Uh, oxytocin is a chemical in the body that has a lot of different functions, but one of its functions is that when it is released, it produces a bonding between a person and the person that they're with. It's released in high levels within a woman while she is breastfeeding, creating a strong mother-child bond. It's released in its greatest amounts among men and women during sexual activity. God has made it so that biochemically, physiologically, there is a gluing together that takes place within the sexual relationship so that body, mind, and soul are meant to become one through the process of sexual relationship. And we see all around us the repercussions of a society that has ignored that design of God within the sexual relationship and, teach, and treats it as a pleasure-seeking commodity instead. God designed sexual relationship between a husband and a wife within marriage as an expression of their oneness and their unity. Second, he has designed it to reflect the relationship of Christ to his church. Ephesians chapter 5 teaches us that a primary reason that God instituted marriage is to reflect his own relationship with his church. As Christ and the church are one, so a husband and a wife are to be one. And they're to be a picture of that intimacy and love between Christ and his church. Is that reflection of Christ and his church true in every aspect of marriage except the sexual relationship? No. The sexual relationship is a part of how God has designed marriage to reflect his relationship with the church. That, that oneness and openness that is expressed within the sexual relationship is to remind us of God's deep desire for intimacy with his people. God regularly refers to sexual faithfulness as an illustration of the faithfulness of his people to him and sexual unfaithfulness as a reflection of his people's unfaithfulness to him. God has designed it to reflect relationship between Christ and the church. God has also made sex within in marriage for the purpose of procreation, so that children will be raised within families by a mother and a father. He made marriage so that husbands and wives all around the world would be fruitful and multiply. That, that is his design so that we would create more offspring that we could raise to become worshipers of God because ultimately, more worshipers of God is the big picture. And so God has designed marriage for the purpose of procreation. He's also designed it, uh, he has also designed sexual relationship within marriage for the purpose of spiritual growth. God's design of everything in our lives is to help us become less selfish and more loving like him. And that is certainly true in this area. The world sees sex as primarily being about what we get, gaining physical pleasure out of the process. God sees sexual relationship as a way to glorify Him and grow in Christ's likeness by giving rather than getting. By being a person who grows in love rather than selfishness within the sexual relationship. And if you want to see more about God's design in that, I'd encourage you towards 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And finally, God's purpose for sex in marriage is for pleasure. You can't read things like the Song of Solomon without recognizing that God has designed for sex to be something that is desired, that is pleasurable. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, A husband and a wife should not deny each other, 
the sexual relationship. And what is bound up within that command is the idea that there's going to be desire for it. That there's pleasure involved in what God has made. Now we, we see even here the distinction between God's design and the world's design. Because the world would say, yes, yeah, sex is about pleasure. But the world would say, sex is about pleasure for me and what I can get out of it. Whereas God would say, no, it is about loving, it is about giving. God would say, it is about experiencing that pleasure together to build oneness and unity within marriage. The world's values when it comes to sexuality are totally different. The world's values start with self-rule. There is no one who has authority over me. I declare what I will be. I declare who I will be with. I am the ultimate authority. The world's uh, values about sexual relationship flow out of love being seen as a feeling. In Scripture, love is identified as an action about giving towards another person. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and He gave his son is an atoning sacrifice for us. And it is about giving an action. But the world has convinced people that love is about a feeling, a feeling that is identified by butterflies in the stomach and those other things that go along with infatuation. And the world says that you must act upon those feelings if you are going to be happy. If you are going to be self-fulfilled, you must act upon any of those feelings that you have. Then there's the idea that sexuality is my identity. In the scripture, God promises a fullness of life in him. And there are plenty of people like Jesus and Paul, people like John the Baptist and Elijah and on and on, who never have sexual relationship in this life and yet fully experience the fullness of life that God has to give. Our world would say, no, no. Fullness of life is about sexual identity and sexual expression. And you have to follow those things if you're going to have fullness of life. Then there's the idea of whatever I do in my bedroom is my business. For the believer, we recognize God is with us at all times. He's with us when we're at Menards. He's with us when we're at home. And we ultimately are accountable to him in all of those different situations. But the world says, whatever I choose to do in the privacy of my own home, that's my business. And no one can tell me what it is or what I should do. There is an ever-growing chasm between God's design for sexual relationship and the world's way of sexual relationship. And God affirms again and again, any sexual expression outside of husband and wife marriage is sin and is wrong. Now the Bible clearly defines the following sexual sins which I think you will see fall outside of God's design for sexual relationship. Let's start with adultery, cheating in marriage. The National Science Foundation at the University of Chicago has been studying infidelity since the early 1970s. And what they have found is that every decade, there is a greater percentage of people committing adultery than the decade before. This is a growing problem within our world. Incest. In our country, this problem continues to grow. One in four girls is sexually abused by someone close to them while they're growing up. One in six boys is sexually abused before they turn 18. 
To those of you in this room that have experienced this, I want to say I'm sorry for what you have been through, for the violations that have taken place. God has no desire for you to experience shame before him or before his people because of what has been done to you. And I want you to know how much we love you and care about you and want to support you as you go through the lifelong healing process from what has happened. Incest. The Bible talks about the sin of bestiality. I can't believe I have to talk about this or mention this. But it is a growing trend within a world where people are more and more uh, seeing people as simply another animal within the animal kingdom. Alfred Kinsey was one of the world's leading authorities on sexuality as head of the National Institute of Sex Research. He actually had a movie made about his life starring Liam Neeson. He believed that we were one of many mammals and as such should feel free to have sexual relationship with any mammal we wanted. And the more and more people see human beings as simply another one of the animals, the more and more that uh, values around sexuality of, hey, I should pursue whatever interest or pleasure without any boundaries that I want dominates our world, the more this will be a growing problem. And we see the numbers of people involved in this in America is growing. And there's actually a growing movement throughout Europe of bestiality brothels that started in Germany and is spreading throughout that continent. Fornication. A broad word for sex outside of marriage, outside of the marriage relationship. But it is particularly focused here on sexual relationship between two single people. We live in a world in which the idea of waiting until marriage is seen as old-fashioned and unrealistic, don't we? Wait until marriage? Sure, why don't we just jump into horse-drawn carriages and churn our own butter while we're at it, if we're going to be that old-fashioned about things. The world encourages hookups for the sake of pleasure-seeking, and it almost assumes a couple will live together and have sexual relationship together before they get married. And the results of this have been catastrophic. And I don't use that word with any sense of exaggeration or hyperbole. Catastrophic. A recent study in the American Journal of Health and Behavior reported that women who had more than one sexual partner over their lifetime are far more likely to suffer from depression than their monogamous counterparts. They're far more likely to suffer from addiction than their monogamous counterparts. They're seven times more likely to attempt suicide. In a national study by Rutgers University, 64% of college students think it is a good idea to live together and have sexual relationship before getting married. And that same study found that couples who had sexual relationship before marriage were 30% more likely to divorce after marriage than those who did not. Among couples who had sexual relationship and lived together before marriage, the woman is twice, twice as likely to be abused in the relationship. And among couples who have sexual relationship before marriage, the woman is three times as likely to experience depression during her lifetime. The National Health and Social Life Council completed the most extensive survey of American sex lives ever conducted and found that sexually active singles have the most problems and get the least pleasure, uh, the least pleasure from sexual relationship. Married couples by far report greater satisfaction in their sex lives 
with those between the ages of 50 and 59 reporting the greatest satisfaction. Nice work, 50-somethings. You can insert your own joke there. I'm going to leave them. National Survey of Counseling Directors conducted a study interviewing 6,500 adolescents and found sexually active teenage girls to be three times more likely to be depressed and three times more likely to attempt suicide. It's as if there were a designer who designed sexual relationship in a particular way and for a particular purpose, and that as the world ignores those designers' purposes, there are consequences for that. Fornication. Another sin that the Scripture talks about is lust. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You want to stare at your wife and long for her? Do it all day long. But any woman that's not your wife, you are not to crave and long for. It isn't a problem to see an attractive person. It isn't a problem to acknowledge that another person is attractive. This becomes a problem when there is a longing or a craving for that person. And friends, pornography is the industry of inappropriate longing and craving. A 2018 study, over 50%, this is unbelievable to me, over 50% of recent divorcees say that pornography played a major role in their divorce. Over 50%. In a survey around the same time conducted among evangelical churches, 68% of men who identified as Christians said they regularly watch or look at porn. 25% of women said they did. And my understanding is is that since COVID, those numbers have only elevated. The numbers seem to have grown in the last couple of years. This lust and craving falls well short of God's designed purpose for sexual relationship. Lust. The final sin that the scripture talks about, homosexuality. And we're going to take a couple of extra minutes here. Why? Because in our society, more than any of the other sins that the Scripture talks about, this is being celebrated. We just came off a month in which this particular act that the Bible talks about as sin was celebrated. And if you won't celebrate it, you're seen as narrow and bigoted. What God calls sin is being celebrated as virtue. And the question is, what are we as followers of Jesus supposed to do about that? What do we as followers of Jesus do when something that God calls sin is celebrated as virtue in our life? What do we do with this particular issue? Let me give you a few things. First of all, we call sin, sin. In the places in the Bible in which homosexual activity is condemned, it's not confusing, but very plain. Read Romans 1, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and what we see is clear teaching that homosexual activity is contrary to God's design and is wrong. The word used in places like 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 is not a confusing word. It is a simple Greek word for a man laying with another man in a sexual way. It was used widely within Greek and Roman writings of this time to represent general homosexual practice. It isn't vague or confusing, It's just not very popular. 
Romans 1 couldn't be clearer when it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Did you get that? Instead of God being the authority, instead of him being the one who designates, him being the one who has all say, now the creature has the say. And I designate. I'm the one who names. I'm the one who identifies. And the more God is moved out of his place of authority, and people are moved into that place of authority, we see this. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. God made men and women for natural relations. A husband and a wife within a marriage relationship according to his physical, spiritual, and emotional design. And as the world has veered further and further from the design of God, what we have seen from churches is that many of them have veered along with the culture. Some have veered to the point of promoting and celebrating their own gay clergy. Others have veered to the point of advertising themselves as open and affirming. Still others, particularly among evangelical churches, have not gone that far, but instead have remained silent from their pulpits about this sin because they know it's controversial and they don't want to lose bodies and bucks. We must never compromise. God is our authority. What he calls it, we call it. What he says, we affirm. Sin is sin. And so as believers, we recognize that we follow Jesus' authority in all things, and we call sin, sin. Second, I want us to recognize that the sin is in the act. I want us to recognize that within the Scripture, it is homosexual practice that God condemns in His Word. We have believers in this room today who are battling same-sex attraction. Many of our brothers and sisters desperately wish that was not their battle. They did not choose it and they do not want it. Same-sex attraction is not listed in the scripture as sin. It is, same, it is homosexual practice that is condemned within the New Testament and within the scripture. James chapter 1 is very clear that there is a difference between desire and sin. There is a difference between temptation and sin. It's our job to support those in our churches who recognize the sin of homosexual activity and are battling same-sex attraction. We need to be a supportive and loving church towards those who are involved in those battles. I know a pastor of a Bible-believing church who struggles with same-sex attraction. He understands that to be the gift of celibacy that Paul talks about and has entered into a lifelong celibate life, but he would do anything to not have this battle in his life. Some of you were there for the Steiger ministry presentation that we did a few months ago in which a same-sex attracted man spoke about his relationship with Christ. I, I didn't agree with everything he said, but one of the things I loved was when he said, 
Christ's call on every person who will become his follower is that they give up everything and follow him. He said, of course I am going to give up my desires and my longings in this area in order to follow him. Because his call is for us to give up everything. Not just things in this area, everything. Not just the easy things, everything. He says, if Christ's call is to give up everything, of course I'm going to give up any attractions, any desires that I have for his sake. That's the simple call of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We need to be a people who love and support and care for our fellow believers who are fighting this battle, just as they love and support and care for us as we fight our own unique battles. We need to be a people who recognize the sin is in the act. And finally, we need to object to homosexual practice out of love for God and love for people. Disapproving of homosexual practice is not uniquely Christian. I had two roommates in college who disapproved of homosexual practice. They weren't Christians. They didn't honor Christ. It didn't have anything to do with it. They just found it displeasing, and they were fine telling anybody that wanted to hear about it how displeasing they found it. There is nothing uniquely Christian about opposing homosexuality or disapproving of it. To be a Christian is to object to homosexual practice because you love God and love people. Right? To be a Christian is to object to homosexual practice because you love God and love people. To be a Christian is about loving God. He's the priority of our life. His commands lead and guide us in all things. Whatever He says something is, we acknowledge it. We follow Him in all things. As Christians, we object to homosexual practice because God says it's wrong, and we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we won't stand by as people practice things that are in direct contradiction to God's plan for marriage because we stand with Him. We love Him above all things. We recognize that Jesus died for sins upon the cross. And when people take things that God calls sin and instead call them righteousness, they slap our Savior in the face. They slap our Savior in the face who died for those specific sins. And we love Jesus more than anything, and we won't stand for that. For so many people, there is a test here around this particular issue when it comes to the passage we looked at a few weeks ago, where Jesus says, anyone who loves family member more than me is what? Not worthy to be my disciple. And for so many people, as family members make declarations, there is the challenge of that passage that comes home. Do I love Jesus more than anyone? We love God, we love Jesus so much, we want to call everything what he calls it and stand with him in any situation. We also want to oppose homosexual practice because God's called us to love people. And loving people isn't telling them what they want to hear. And loving people isn't telling people what is popular. Loving people involves telling people the truth. A person may believe that they are going to get to Iowa by getting on 35 North. All of society may affirm that you get to Iowa by getting on 35 North. I may be seen as narrow because I tell people that getting to Iowa involves getting on 35 South. 
If we genuinely love someone, we are not going to watch them drive to Duluth when they intend to go to Iowa. As believers, we want to love people, and that doesn't mean affirming anything and everything that they want in their life. It doesn't mean affirming everything that's popular. It means telling the truth and affirming the truth with gentleness, with compassion, but the truth. As followers of Jesus, we want to love people by showing them the truth. We want to love people by being compassionate towards them. We believe that every person, every person is made in the image of God and as such is entitled to respect, kindness, and dignity. That Jesus' call in our life is for us to love every person, whether they are our enemies, whether they are our persecutors, he has called us to love them and to pray for them. Hateful and harassing behavior and attitudes directed toward any individual are to be rejected and repudiated because they're not from God. God calls us to be a people who love through truth and compassion and gentleness. There is much more to say about all of this, but I need to zoom back out from this particular sin of homosexuality that the Scripture teaches with to the big view of sexual sin and what the Proverbs have to say about how we can battle that. Remember the Proverbs? There's something about that in this sermon series. right? So let's zoom back out because the Proverbs say, and this is very good news for us, that sexual sin is beatable, that we can have victory in the area of sexual sin. What are the keys? Proverbs says, here, here are some keys to victory in the areas of sexual sin. First, recognize the damage that comes from sexual sin. Proverbs 5, 3 through 5 says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Giving in to sexual temptation does damage in our lives. And there are large chunks of Proverbs chapter 5 and 6 that are all about trying to help us recognize the damage that comes with giving in to sexual sin. George Leonard, for years a leading voice of the sexual revolution, realized after years of calling for uh, sexual expressions outside of marriage, the damage that it does. He wrote late in his life, I finally come to see that every game has rules and sex has rules. Unless you play by the rules, you'll find sex can create a depth of loneliness that nothing else can. Damage. The New York Times estimates that there are currently 110 million sexually transmitted infections in the United States. Damage. I have seen marriages torn apart by pornography. I know a family right now where the kids are being torn apart on the inside because of the adultery of their father. I've seen the pain caused by sexual abuse among the young and the lifelong healing that is involved when that has taken place in a person's life. I've seen the damage done in my own life by giving in to the lust of the eyes. The author of the Proverbs is pleading with his kids and God our Father pleads with us to see the damage that is done through sexual sin. Because when we see that damage, it is a large part of the motivation that God has given to us to stay away from it. Sexual sin does damage in our lives. The second thing that Proverbs teaches us is flee temptation. The next couple of verses say, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. 
and do not go near the door of her house. Do you notice that it didn't just say keep away from her? It says instead keep far away from her. But we're to keep as far away from sexual temptation as we possibly can. Keep as far away from lust as we possibly can. We live in a world filled with temptations to lust. They are all around us. Those temptations to lust are greater in certain areas than they are in others, and we should stay away from those areas, whatever they are in life. Just as a man might be tempted to lust after the perfect physical form in pornography, women may be tempted to lust after the perfect romantic ideal in romance novels or Hallmark movies. Lust is lust. And whether we are lusting after the perfect physical form or lusting after the perfect romantic ideal, they both express a discontent with what God has given us at the current stage of our life, and they must be avoided at all costs. We're to stay as far away as we can from areas of lust. Flee temptation. Third, celebrate sex as God intended. If you're married, celebrate sex as God intended. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? There is a terrible message that has at times been communicated to kids growing up in the church that sex is just something you should stay away from. It's kind of the anti-Nike message, just don't do it, right? And that's all that's communicated sometimes to kids. Oh, stay away from sex, stay away from sex. That's again and again, no, don't do it, don't do it. But we need to acknowledge sex is God's design, not Satan's design. And God desires for people to experience sexual relationship within the marriage relationship. And as we read 1 Corinthians 7, we recognize he designed for people to experience sexual relationship regularly within the marriage relationship. It is to be celebrated. And part of the reason that the author of Proverbs is writing about it here is it is a part of God's design to keep us from temptation. That we fully celebrate sex within the marriage relationship. Finally, In order to combat temptation in our life, we need to seek God in His Word. The finale of these two chapters, the author of Proverbs is writing about sexual relationship. He says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. The commandments of God are the way of life. Part of the reason that people give in to sexual sin is a desire to fill the longing that is within them, a longing that ultimately only God can fill. And it is only by seeking God in His Word, knowing Him deeply, that we can be filled with the presence of God in a way that removes this temptation from our lives. When people come to me and talk to me about battling lust, I always engage them in a conversation about fasting. If we're going to combat this, 
then I want you to be dedicated to regularly fasting, digging into the Word of God and prayer, because this is a spiritual problem that we're dealing with. And it can only be combated by, combated by digging in deep into relationship with God. We are told that we're transformed through the renewing of our minds. And so we need to dig into the Word of God if we're going to deal with this spiritual problem and overcome the temptation that is all around us. We must fill up on God and His ways if we're to overcome se sexual temptation. Proverbs teaches us sexual sin is beatable. There can be victory in our life. But I want to close by answering this question. What if I've already committed sexual sin? What if I've failed? What if I have failed big time? What if I failed repeatedly? Is sexual sin forgivable? Is sexual sin forgivable in my life? The answer to that is yes. The early church was filled with believers who had practiced lust, been abused, and been abusers, who'd practiced homosexuality, committed adultery. Paul writes to a group in Corinth, and he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, that's fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If a person continues down the path of sexual sin without there being any battle in their life, that is a sign their heart has not been transformed by Jesus and that they have not been renewed. Because when a person's life is changed by Jesus... They are given a new heart, and that heart desires the things of God, and a battle begins in their life. Right? A battle begins in their life between the Spirit and the flesh. It isn't that the person who has been saved by Jesus Christ now becomes perfect and never sins in any of these areas again. It is that the person who is saved by Jesus Christ has the Spirit come to dwell within them, and now they battle. They battle with the Spirit against these longings of the flesh. Paul is saying, if you are involved in that battle, if you just continue to walk down the pathway of sexual sin, that is a sign that Jesus hasn't actually transformed your heart. But he says to the Corinthians, your hearts have been transformed. So, so many of you have been saved by Jesus. Next verse. And such were some of you. What glorious words those are. Such were some of you. All of the sexual sin and other sin that was involved, could they possibly be forgiven of that? Yes. They were washed. Sins completely forgiven. Totally wiped away. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ experiencing experience washing jesus washes away their sins they experience justification they're declared right in the courtroom of god based upon the work of jesus christ they experience sanctification where they are growing in righteousness throughout their life because of the consistent work of god's holy spirit god is at work he has forgiven 
Can you be forgiven if you've experienced sexual sin in your life? Yes. Yes. It can be completely and totally washed away. What does 1 John chapter 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a verse written to believers. Right? Will you confess? He's faithful and just. Guys, he, he cleanses us. We at Friendship are a family that wants to battle with each other, uh, on behalf of each other, I should say, in these areas. Right? We, we, we want to run with each other towards Christ-likeness in these areas. For those who battle lust, we want to pray with you. We want to admit our own battles in this area. And we want to fight this with you. For those who battle same-sex attraction, we want to pray for you, care for you, and walk alongside you. For those who battle scars from past sexual abuse, we want to love you, care for you, pray for you as you go through the process of lifelong healing. We want to be the open, forgiving body of Christ. And I would ask you to spend a moment praying with me so that that would be true of us as the family of God. Would you guys bow your heads with me? Father, I, I don't know that there is a greater area in life where people experience shame and guilt than this area. So much shame about past sins that you have forgiven. And I pray right now that as we confess our sins before you, we would experience the full cleansing in our lives, knowing fully that, that, that you have cleansed us, but we want to see it rightly. We want to see it clearly that you have cleansed us, that we're declared right because of the work of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you might be at work in our lives, helping us to battle this, helping us to be open with each other, helping us to battle as a team against these sins in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.